Actually, this is the afternoon Brian Adams. We're going to be all sort of climate, sustainability, science, agriculture. Today's the day nature prevails. Right, I, Brian and Adam. Ooh, that sounds. Should I change the name of the show yeah, please, on the website? I think so. Please, we all knew that's what it should have been called, and now it, it will be called that. You got to tame him, Buzz. You got to tame this guy. I don't know. There's, there's too many syllables in afternoon, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Well, thank you, Buzz, and uh, we're continuing on this Thursday afternoon with our harvest theme. It is September. It's harvest month. A couple weeks ago, we had CISA, community involved in. Sustaining Agriculture on. Last week we had Jim McGovern, uh, one of our U.S. House representatives, talking about his work in agriculture. Next week, Just Roots from Greenfield. The week after that, Denise Barstow from Barstow Farms. So we are hitting this agriculture thing on the beautiful Thursday, and hopefully all the farmers are out there harvesting away, and I'm delighted. We are harvesting local heroes. That's what we're doing. That's it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And we are delighted this afternoon to welcome Sean Robinson. Sean is the director of Prospect Meadow Farm in Hatfield, which has in Hatfield, Mass., which is the first therapeutic farming community in the Pioneer Valley. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian and Buzz. I really appreciate it. Look forward to the opportunity to speak. So let's talk about Prospect Meadow. It's a it's a nonprofit farm. It hires uh, developmentally challenged individuals and individuals with autism to do farm work. Is that right? Absolutely. So we are a farm that has been around uh, for 11 years, located in Hatfield. We actually have two farm sites, one on Prospect Street and one on West Street. The one on West Street has a farm store. And there we serve individuals at both sites uh, who have developmental disabilities and autism and often um, a, a dual mental, chronic mental health issue as well. And what do those, those uh, folks do? Yep. Well, what's great about the farm is, you know, we're creating opportunities to provide vocational training, but we do that in an experiential, through an experiential experience and, and a paid experiential experience. So folks come to the farm every day. Uh, they get coaching on how to meet the various goals they've set up both individual goals for that day and long-term goals by their job coach. Then they engage and work throughout the day. That's paid, um, at least minimum wage. And then they are able to do some social skills building in the afternoon before they head home. So that's really stunning. It's this, sort of this mix between work and professional development and job coaching that makes you so unique. How did the farm come about? Yeah. So uh, about 11 years ago, um, ServiceNet, well, maybe it was 13 years ago or so, uh, ServiceNet had a residential group home where we had a llama. Uh, we had just sort of begun to better understand the therapeutic benefits of animals. And so there had been some interest in maybe doing some type of farm, uh, but we just wanted to dip our toes in the water. And so at one of our residential group homes, uh, we had a couple llamas. What we saw, there was one specific case, but what we saw in general is that the folks who lived there connected with those animals in a way they didn't connect with staff. In some cases, didn't even connect with their family. Um, and there was one specific case where this individual was, you know, I call it stuck, you know, unable to... Um, unable to leave the house, unable to engage with anyone. And actually, it led to him ultimately um, living in this residential program because before he was at home and the parents were so concerned because he was unable to move. Well, within, you know, I think it was a year, maybe a year and a half, through some work with the llama and this individual, he was coming out every day to feed and water this animal. And now, 11 years later, uh, this individual works, last I knew, worked full-time for ServiceNet, doesn't live in any residential program as a peer specialist, encouraging others to pursue their goals. Unbelievable. It all started with a llama. It all started Who with knew, llama. Are llamas the ones that spit at you when they're, <laughs> yeah, they when they're mad? That's what everyone thinks. Uh, but, you know, I've been around a lot. We've essentially had alpacas and llamas the entirety of the farm. And I've never had one spit at me. I think I've seen one spit maybe twice. Well, it's really interesting because so. I spent nine months in South America and yep. Bolivia and Peru. 
I was spit on a lot. Uh, well, there, <laughs> that goes to show that there's... I know. There's, uh, <laughs> Sean should be hosting the show. <laughs> but I, the afternoon show. I, I, can't, I can't not ask the question, yeah. what is it about caring for animals that you think had such a profound effect on that young man? Yeah, yeah, I think it was the vulnerability of the animal, really. You know, well, the, or at least that's um, the coaching technique we sort of used. It was, you know, you love this beautiful animal um, that you know he he would see through the window. You're responsible for feeding and watering them. If you don't, if you can't feed and water them, well, then who will? Who's going to do what? And of course, you know, obviously, if there, were, if he had absolutely refused, you know, staff would have figured out a way. Um, but th- that inspired him, you know, um, that made him think, well, if I don't care for this animal, who's going to care for it? And so it started with him coming out and just bringing water, bringing food. And then next thing you know, he's spending more time there, sitting by the llama pen, our fenced-in area pasture. Um, And then next thing you know, I mean, it took, you know, a few years. Uh, Eventually, actually, he moved to the farm, which was great. So the first year we opened the farm, because of all the benefits he experienced, uh, he was uh, a resident of the farm. We don't currently house people, but then we did. Uh, And so he helped me build the farm, you know, for the first three years. Uh, He lived there. Then he moved on from there into his own apartment. Uh, And beginning when he was at the farm, he started pursuing peer mentorship training, got a certification in it. And so when he moved off the farm, he was able to get a full-time job uh, doing that work. And it all, it all started with that, with that llama. Wow. That's, and you have, you have goats, you have chickens, you have bees, you have pigs. Yep. And of course, llamas still. Yep, we still have llamas and alpacas. Yep. Let's talk about the, the the bees for a moment. One of the uh, video clips that I watched that I found so moving was a client of yours just was so interested in bees and beekeeping and had lots of challenges in in his life. You not only bought hives for him, you brought in a beekeeper to act as mentor, uh, and it just transformed his life. It seems like. Absolutely. And, and folks can go to servicenet.org or prospectmetalfarm.org to see some of those videos. And, you know, I would say it was transformational in, in many ways. So what we did first was um, we bought a couple of hives. And so they were technically the farms, but we knew this individual was really interested in it. We really encouraged him to pursue it. Um, and at first we let him just try. And then we saw, you know, there needs to be more support. And we heard him and saw that his goal was something larger. His goal was a bee business, to be a bee, bee expert. In some ways, he thought he was. Um, but we saw that there was a lot of room for growth. So we were able to find someone else. Actually, oddly enough, uh, someone in ServiceNet had been paying someone to coach them on bees in their personal life. So that person shared with me the contact information. I reached out to the gentleman, and he was able to coach and work with this individual for an extended period of time. I mean, they worked together probably for about a year, uh, one-on-one coaching. We paid the mentor to come in, um, a consultant's fee, to come in and do this coaching. And I think they did it for two hours, maybe at one point, uh, two sessions, four hours a week. And so he would come out, help him with the hives. After that coaching... We helped the individual create a business plan. He presented it to his treatment team. And so those are, you know, parents, estate workers, things like that, and said, can I use some of my own money to start my business? Here's my business plan. They let him use his own money. We let him use the farm space at no cost. He bought his own hives. We stopped doing bees. We let him do bees, hardy bees is what he calls his company, and we buy the honey um, directly for, for, uh, from him, you know, and, and so it, it works out. Some he sells to family and friends, but he's got a guaranteed buyer from us, and we sell that in our farm store. Brian, you know? if people ever wondered why we call this afternoon buzz, uh, they just got their answer. Yeah, yeah. Now we know. <laughs> so uh, honeybees and llamas being transformative for, for some of your clients. Filling dreams or f- fulfilling dreams is really, 
you know, what we're about. I mean, there's that scenario for that person who who was able to create his own bee business and has the business cards and uh, creates the honey. Right now, he's producing honey, you know, currently. Uh, but we also have other situations like that. We have a young woman who loves illustrating, has loved illustrating her entire life, but also loves gardening. So a few years ago, after seeing her passion for illustrating, we wanted to help her become you know, a technical, and I'm putting up air quotes, illustrator, and actually have something published. And so ServiceNet was able to work with her to create a book. I wrote um, some of the words for it, and then she was the illustrator, and it was called Mommy's Little Farm Girl. Um, and she illustrated the entire book. We produced it. We did an event at the Garden House. Um, since then, she's read at the Eric Carle Museum and other places. Uh, the book at the, the Hatfield Girl Scouts, she read the book. And actually, just today, she was talking to me about um, her third book that she's planning because she just produced an activity book that we're going to put out soon that supports the first book. So that's another case of us, you know, helping uh, a dream come true. We have another young woman who said, you know what, I want to do my own farm. And she was able to talk to her parents, com convince them to create some space, um, to make some space available. So our extra seeds and starch, she was able to take home and use when she needed advice. She was able to come to us. And we also brought, uh, bought that produce from her to include in our CSA. Um, and so those are some of the ways that we want to sort of inspire people to pursue their dreams and then create enough space that hopefully with some support too, they can uh, pursue those dreams even outside of the context of the farm. Uh, you've let the word the uh, the service net drop yes. uh, a few times. Can you tell us briefly what your relation, what Prospect Meadow? Farm's relationship is with ServiceNet. Yep. So Prospect Metal Farm is a program of ServiceNet. Uh, ServiceNet's a large human service agency uh, that provides uh, mental health and developmental disability services to individuals around the valley. And um, you know, I would I would point to the ServiceNet uh, CEO Sue Stubbs, who you know at the very beginning of this idea was really the driving force. You know, was able to connect it. And and the story I heard was. Um, had either read or someone told her about the history of the state hospital. And while there were lots of, you know, problematic pieces of that, one of its strengths was its farm. You know, it was how um, the individuals who lived there were really able to engage in a positive way that seemed different from the typical institutionalization. And, and there's one year, and I've looked this up since to confirm, one year that the state uh, hospital, which was one of the largest businesses in Northampton, um, or government, uh, didn't require any state funding because of the amount of money they made from their farming operation. Um, and so that, you know, even back then is pretty impressive. And, and so that story, hearing from individuals how important gardening uh, has been, animals have been in their recovery, really inspired her to um, encourage the idea of pursuing a farm, and that led to the llamas. And then the llamas led to me getting involved. And then the rest is history. Out. And the rest is history. That's Eleven right. years later, and we, you know, right now we serve. 80 individuals a year with developmental disabilities. Um, you know, every single day between the two farms, we have 55 individuals. And many of them worked in sheltered workshops before, which are, you know, factory-type spaces where maybe you're paid by the widget uh, that you move. Um, you know, lots of people find it as sort of an isolating type of way to provide employment supports. But it's also very low dollar. Your paycheck might come in the mail, and maybe it's you know, $70 or something like that. Many of our farmhands make $350, $700 even a week, you know, so it's that's great. Just terrific. We're talking with Sean Robinson. Sean is the director at Prospect Meadow Farm in Hatfield, the first therapeutic farming community in the Pioneer Valley. And I just want to say, Brian, before we go to break, which we do have to do, uh, and I'm sorry because... Uh, I don't know whether it's that your smile is so infectious oh. or the content of what you're sharing with us. It's very hard not to have the broadest of smiles on your face listening to Sean exactly. describe. So stick done. with us for the second half of the show, and we will be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Thank God I'm a country boy. 
Well, I got me a fine wife, I got me old fiddle When the sun's coming up, I got cakes on a griddle Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle Thank God I'm a country boy When the work's all done and the sun's set low Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. Tune into the Cambridge Connection Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. when Betsy Mayotte of the Institute of Student Loan Advisors digs in on all the recent student loan news. It happens all over Massachusetts. Anytime I choose. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. It's the 14th annual Tom Kazenzi Driving for the Cure Charity Golf Tournament to support Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on September 27th at Twin Hills Country Club. To get involved, visit us online at TomKazenziDrivingForTheCure.com. And together, we can make a difference. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. What's for dinner tonight? What's on your plate is a conversation with the land, with the farmers. Local farm fresh food is all around. Get it direct from farms and farm stands at farmers markets, at grocery stores, in local restaurants. Just look for CESA's bright yellow Local Hero label, letting you know that this is food from local farms, grown with care by friends and neighbors. Local Hero food, as fresh as it gets. Inflation is still going strong. This week, the Labor Department reported the consumer price index rose in August after being flat in July. Gasoline prices fell by 10% last month, but food prices were sharply higher. Medical care, new cars, and car insurance were also more expensive. Inflation could actually get much worse. A major railroad strike is looming as the union and the rail lines are at an impasse. They have until Friday to reach a new contract or the workers could walk out. Economists say that would interrupt the supply chain and increase the cost of goods. If you need to lease a car this month, automotive publisher Edmunds has identified five lease deals that cost at or below $199 a month. The best deal is on the Hyundai Venue. The small SUV cost $169 a month for 36 months with $3,200 due at signing. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Good afternoon. Welcome back. We're talking with Sean Robinson. Sean is the director of Prospect Meadow Farm in Hatfield, the first therapeutic farming community in the Pioneer Valley. Um, <coughs> Sean, farming is an incredibly challenging business, mm. as is working with folks with developmental disabilities and individuals with autism, autism, and you combine those two professions. I imagine there's never a dull moment on the farm. Is that correct? No, it's a, it's, we often say it could, well, like a lot of people probably say about their workplace, it could be a TV show for sure. Uh, it's certainly interesting. It's certainly a community. Uh, you know, most of our farmhands, it's the place where they see their friends, meet their boyfriends and girlfriends. It's really the center of their life because in most cases, they don't have a car. And what's unique about the farm too is uh, myself and my staff we actually coordinate all the transportation too, meaning we directly pick them up. Uh, so we pick up about 40 people every day from as far away as Gill to East Springfield. How do participants get referred to you? Yep. So there's a couple ways. The primary way is through the Department of Developmental Services. So if you're someone who receives services from them, uh, you would speak to your service coordinator, tell them you're interested in the farm, and they would set you up with a tour. We do tours for the general public. 
um, every day, at, every weekday at 10 a.m. And then also, and since we're sitting here in Northampton, we've had a long time uh, relationship with Northampton schools. And so they've sent students to the farm. So when you're 18 or 19 um, and have special needs, the school serves you to 22. But if you've completed all your courses, they want to provide you with some vocational training. So for many years, Northampton has sent several students every year uh, to work at Prospect Meadow Farm, which has been great because it also creates a seamless transition for those families. You know, often everything changes once you hit 22. Well, for those families, the only thing that might change is instead of a Northampton school van pool picking you up, the farm staff are picking you up. And that's really comforting for families. Average age of your participants? Yep. So at our two farm sites, so our uh, Route 5 and 10 uh, farm site on uh, West Street in Hatfield, that skews younger. You know, that's uh, typically 18 to 30. Um, and we serve all ages at both, but that's the standard there. And then our main farm site, we call it the East Farm on Prospect Street in Hatfield, serves um, yeah, probably mostly 30 to 65. Wow. So yeah. all ages. Right? All ages. We've had people retire, actually. Yeah. Um, Sean, congratulations are in order. Yes. You just received a 595000 social enterprise capital grant from the state to create a commercial kitchen and a fully equipped carpentry shop, workshop. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that. Absolutely. So we couldn't be more honored. Um, the current administration just uh, provided us with a grant for $595,000 to renovate our space. Um, we've had the same space for 11 years. It's a 3,500 square foot residential house. So it wasn't really built for the purposes that we use it. So if you can imagine, you know, at that site, say 40 plus people every day, trying to use the bathroom, trying to, you know, whatever. A residential house just isn't made for that. Um, and so we're really converting it to commercial space. But what's special about it is the large production kitchen that's going to allow us to do uh, products like we're one of the largest growers of shiitake mushrooms. We want to do a shiitake mushroom soup and have it on the shelves of Big Y's and Stop and Shops, sort of like a Newman's Own. So ultimately, it can so, sort of support the work of the farm. We needed that kitchen to do that. But we also want to train our, our folks in the skills that will you know, transfer the jobs that are available in the Northampton area and that are needed. And so we feel like preparing them in the culinary field and preparing them as either laborers or carpenters um, is valuable. And there are transition opportunities uh, for those type of careers. And, and vocational education has not been talked about or focused enough on in today's society, but there's never been more of a need. And so we think in order to have a resilient food economy and a resilient labor market, you know, people with disabilities have to be included in that. And so we want to provide them with the training and certifications ultimately to be sure to be included. And you are actively fundraising to complete that project. Is that right? Absolutely. How, how can folks get in touch with you and Prospect Meadow and ServiceNet and contribute in any way that listeners can? Absolutely. So I, I would love if folks went to www.servicenet.org or prospectmetalfarm.org um, and chose the donate option. Uh, right now we're trying to raise $100,000. Uh, this grant got us started, but it's one of those things that's sort of a, a once in several decades opportunity. And so once we actually got it and looked at our true needs, um, we realized that that wouldn't quite cut it. Uh, especially in the current inflation environment, but we need to equip the kitchen, equip the carpentry shop. We added outdoor accessible regular bathrooms, whereas our farmhands have used porta potties year round uh, for the last 11 years. So that's going to be a huge improvement and a large pavilion creating shade, a place to eat lunch, um, fans built in, a place for farmhands to charge their cell phones. That's all things that we haven't had um, you know, over all these years. So really what this is going to do is create a way more comfortable uh, work environment for the farmhands that we serve. Uh, can you give us that website one more yep. time for Prospect Meadow? Yep. Uh, you can go to servicenet.org or prospectmeadowfarm.org. And right now we're trying to raise the $100,000. We just started the campaign uh, this week. Uh, we call it the Growing for Good campaign. And, you know, we're looking for 100 people this week to donate $100 um, to just give us a strong start. We've been talking with Sean Robinson. He is the director of Prospect Meadow Farm in Hatfield, Massachusetts. You can visit the website and get inspired as we have. It's exactly the right today. word. It, it is inspirational. The fact that these developmentally 
um, disabled folks and uh, people who suffer from uh, autism actually can be productive doing agricultural work. It is just, it's terribly inspiring. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear about it. And uh, stick with us. We're going to come back with another environmental theme. Uh, going to interview Michael Webster, uh, who just wrote a book called The Rescue Effect on the Ability of Nature to Adapt and the Resiliency of Nature. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Now the latest from WHMP, I'm Monty Belmonte, in for Jess Tyler. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday flew two planes of immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, escalating a tactic by Republican governors to draw attention to what they consider to be the Biden administration's failed border policies. Flights to the upscale island enclave in Massachusetts were part of an effort to, quote, transport illegal immigrants to sanctuary destinations. While DeSantis's office didn't elaborate on their legal status, many migrants who crossed the border from Mexico are temporarily shielded from deportation after being freed by U.S. authorities to pursue asylum in immigration court. As allowed under U.S. law and international treaty, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, a Republican, said he was in touch with local officials and that short-term shelter was being provided. Law enforcement officials say authorities are examining whether the employee who reported an explosion at Northeastern University may have lied to investigators and staged the incident. One official said investigators identified inconsistencies in the employee's statement and became skeptical because his injuries didn't match wounds typically consistent with an explosion. The officials could not discuss details of the investigation publicly and spoke to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity. In an interview with the Boston Globe, the employee denied staging the explosion, calling the event very traumatic. The Northeastern explosion came on the same day there was a bomb scare and subsequent lockdown at Northampton High School. No bombs were found at NHS, and the threat there is believed to have come from a student text in a group chat. Sunny, breezy, a high of 68 to 72 this afternoon. Scattered clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 60s. Overnight lows of 40 to 46. Mostly sunny tomorrow. A high of 70 to 74. Low 70s and a sun cloud mix for Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Why work for just any hospital when you can work as a medical assistant, patient service rep, office nurse, or scheduler for Cooley Dickinson Hospital? Winner of the Best Local Hospital Award by the Gazette's 2022 Reader's Choice Awards. Stop by for on-the-spot interviews on Tuesday, September 27th from 9 to 11 and 4 to 6 at Cooley Dickinson Medical Group, 22 Atwood Drive, Northampton, or apply online at cooleydickinson.org today. Katarina and Raul swing 30 feet above the street as the soul magnets get down. And Mr. G revs it up. The Amherst Block Party, tonight, 5 to 9. Show circus stilt walkers, jugglers, acrobats, and contortionists. Ollie the Clown makes balloon animals for kids. Nikki paints faces. The yo-yo people do tricks. Step dancing, kung fu, global eats on the street. Downtown Amherst is one big party. The Amherst Block Party, tonight, 5 to 9.
Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we, we are back. I'm here with Brian Adams, and we have a really interesting book, the author of which is with us from, I think, from Manhattan uh, via phone. Brian? Uh, Michael Webster has just written what sounds to be an engaging new book called The Rescue Effect. And it's a book about climate change and uh, eco-anxiety and ecological decline. Uh, and the book is coming out October 11th. So we're delighted to uh, get a little jump start on that. And Michael, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Brian and Buzz. I'm delighted to be here. So we talk a lot on this show about climate change and about the sort of the catastrophic implications. In fact, a lot of people don't call it climate change anymore. They refer to it as climate chaos and climate catastrophe. And you've written what seems to be, and I need to profess my ignorance here of having not read the book, but in our defense, it doesn't come out for a few weeks. Um, but you've written a, a um, much more of an upbeat analysis of nature's resilience. Can you talk about what the premise of the book is? Sure. And listen, the stuff that you're hearing and talking about, it's, it's true, right? The world is changing and it's changing really quickly. And there is a lot of bad news in the environment about species that are in trouble and ecosystems are changing. And so that is true. But what I decided to do is write a book that looked at some other aspects of the picture of what's going on right now. And the bottom line is that nature is actually really good at dealing with change in general. And if you sort of break it down, there's a bunch of different ways that organisms and species do this. Collectively, this is actually the thesis of my book, which is the rescue effect, where the race rescue effect is nature's automatic systems for dealing with change. And you can think of the rescue effect a little bit like a thermostat on an AC unit. You know, if you've got a room and the room is getting warmer and warmer, at some point it's going to cross the threshold and that AC unit is going to come on and cool the temperature down. That's kind of how the rescue effect works in nature. When organisms or species are dealing with a changing environment, there are all these different mechanisms that turn on automatically to help them cope with that change. Uh, Buzz, I taught for years at Greenfield Community College, and uh, one of my favorite topics was evolution, and it's just so, so interesting. And um, for this rescue effect, for, for nature to take hold, requires a certain amount of time, correct? And when Darwin talked about evolution, generally we talked about gradual evolution, species changing or adapting or being resilient, but given, you know, not hundreds of years, not thousands, but in some cases 10,000s of years uh, as the environment changes. We are witnessing now such a profound, quick change in the environment. Can nature keep up with this a massive amount of change in such a short period of time? Um, so the answer is some can and some, and some can't. You, you mentioned evolution here, and evolution is one of those six mechanisms. So if you look at the rescue effect, it's got six parts. Evolution's one of the slower ones. And if you think about this in terms of what you described as Darwinian evolution, that is a really slow process. You know, you can trace it back millions and millions, hundreds of millions of years and see how things have changed. The kind of evolution that's going to help species in the short term is going to have to be much faster than that. And it turns out evolution can actually happen more or less instantaneously. All you need is a population where there are individuals that have different traits. If the environment changes and some survive because of those traits and others don't survive because they don't have that trait, then you've had evolution happen in that moment. And so it can be instantaneous. And we've seen examples of that in nature. There's an example with some snakes in Australia that have evolved uh, to be able to, you know, uh, not die from cane toads, which are new sort of poisonous 
species in their environment. One of the chapters in the book that I wrote about is about um, some fish that live in Africa's Lake Victoria that has experienced an enormous amount of change in the last few decades. And there's evidence that these fish species are evolving on the scale of you know decades to forms that are uh, apparently better at dealing with the kind of environmental change they're experiencing. So while evolution won't always be the answer for all species, evolution can act quickly under the right circumstances. I know uh, Darwin, again, really focusing on gradual evolution and you referring to sort of punctuated evolution. I read a wonderful book not too long ago called Darwin's Finches, and there was a catastrophic series of climate issues um, off the coast of uh, Ecuador and the Galapagos, and and the 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 finches that were able to survive this rapid climate change were remarkably different from from finches before. And that's a um, to to uh, elaborate or collaborate what you said this this idea of punctuated evolution. Michael, can you talk about some of these other rescue effects? Environment, uh, evolutionary uh, rescue is one. What are some of the others? So one of the really interesting ones that we're seeing happen all over the world right now is that species are finding that their environment is changing. So as the world is getting warmer, it's not just temperature. We're also getting changes in patterns of weather, of fires, of, you know, of rain and floods. And what's happening is that species generally have a range of conditions under which they thrive. And as those conditions in a given place are starting to change, we're seeing species start to move to new locations. The, the common pattern is that they're moving poleward, right? So things that are closer to the equator are moving closer to the poles. They're essentially trying to track the climate to find places that suit the conditions that they used to have. This is also happening on mountains, where species are sort of gradually moving up higher in elevation to track that climate. In the book, I call that geographic rescue, where a species um, moves from one location to track that environmental change. This is becoming so common in nature that there's even a scientific research conference that happens periodically called Species on the Move, which is entirely about how species are moving, how we can predict their movements in the future, and increasingly, how we can facilitate it, which puts conservationists in a really interesting position of asking themselves, do they want to actively move a species from where it has been found that we're accustomed to in the past to a new place where it hasn't been found in the future in order for it to survive? It seems like you've done an enormous amount of research in the writing of this book. Do you have a, a favorite time or a memorable time that uh, really sticks in your head in terms of of, uh, of, of doing the work of writing a book? Sure. One of the first chapters that I worked on, it's actually the first full chapter in the book. It's about um, tigers in India and how tigers are adapting to uh, a world that's looking very different for them. They're increasingly isolated in small parks that are getting farther and farther away from each other as people are occupying the lands in between for farmland and for other purposes. And when I began researching this book, I decided to look into, you know, I had the good fortune to go to India in 2017, and I saw a tiger in a park that was just one of the most sort of um, awesome natural experiences I've ever had in my life to see this animal walking out in the open. And one of the guides had told me that that tiger had come from another park, that they'd recognized it by the markings on its face, and that it originated somewhere else. And I thought, huh, that would be interesting to look at that tiger because it could help tell the story of how when organisms move from one park to another and connect populations in different places, it's actually generally very good for conservation. It's part of the rescue effect. And so as I started looking at this one tiger, I learned that he was called Panalal by the guides, which in Hindi basically means son of Panna. And Panna was the park he had come from, which was about 90 miles away. And it turns out there was this amazing backstory that had been documented in you know, people's notebooks and scientific papers, and I was able to interview people and sort of retrace what had occurred there. And this park had gone through an extraordinary set of changes where in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a rash of increase in poaching of tigers for selling their parts in international markets. And the poachers were so effective that they killed every last tiger in this park. 
which was hugely embarrassing for the Indian government. And they decided they needed to do something about it. So they started collecting a few tigers from parks that had plenty of them and introducing them into this new park, essentially restarting this entire population. And they did this with a handful of animals. And it was so successful that these tigers immediately started breeding and tigers can actually have a lot of cubs. And when there's plenty of room and there's plenty of food, they can do quite well. And by the time those tigers that had been introduced got to sort of the third generation, basically the grand cubs of the tigers that were in the park, one of them decided, you know what, this park's getting too full for me. I'm going to move somewhere else. And he decided to start just exploring the countryside and ended up winding up in this other park where I saw him, where he had just arrived. But the cool part was everybody knew who this tiger was. There were documents of him and his whose parents were, whose grandparents were. Uh, I was able to talk to the managers about different events that happened in his life. He almost died when he was a cub and was rescued by the rangers. He was observed by farmers in their fields as he was making his journey. And he really connected these two different parks, which sort of created this wonderful story about this individual tiger, but also speaks to the power of these parks if they're connected, if there are places where animals like tigers can travel from one place to another, that the whole network becomes something much more powerful than any one park on its own. It's and really it's interesting. And, and well. that's a story of it, an individual. I wonder, We want to talk more about demographic rescue, as you call it, and the other types of rescue. We are talking about Mike, talking with Michael Meta Webster about his book that's going to be coming out on October 11th called The Rescue Effect and Nature's Resiliency. And we're going to be back with Michael right after these messages. Stay with us. Climate Control Center for the World. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. From Sarawak to Amazonas, Costa Rica to Mangy BC Hills, the cortege rhythm of falling timber. What kind of currency grows in these new deserts, these brand new floodplains? True terror, as Kurt Vonnegut said, is waking up one morning to discover that your high school class is running the country. So, with Monty's help, help? We take on the terror of that thought every morning at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9. And again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. Join Mark Patrick Seminars and lose the weight guaranteed for only $49.99. Hypnosis designed to stop disordered eating and cravings. Also, you can stop smoking with Mark Patrick Seminars. Hypnosis can destroy your desire to smoke without cravings, irritability, and weight gain, or your money back. Join the over half million others who have attended. Seminars are Monday, October 3rd at Hotel Northampton. The weight loss seminar is at 5.30 and the stop smoking seminar is at 8 p.m. Go to markpatrickseminars.com to learn more. Hey, are you coming to the Doozy Do Parade? The what? The Doozy Do Parade. There'll be teams of marchers, all with their own theme, as well as bands, floats, antique cars, roller derby, you name it. It's a fundraiser for Northampton neighbors, which provides free services for seniors living in the area. Sounds like fun. When is it? Saturday, September 17th, rain or shine. They'll step off from Northampton Center for the Arts at 11 a.m. and march up Main Street to the Academy of Music. Anyone can join a team or donate at doozydo.org. See you there. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Good afternoon and welcome back. We're talking with Michael Webster. Michael is the author of a new book called The Rescue Effect, available in your local bookstores. We always encourage people to buy local 
uh, shop local, but I suppose you can always get it on Amazon, but we won't go there, right? We will support our local bookstores. Uh, it's coming out October 11th, and uh, Michael, welcome back, and thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you. Um, one thing that, that gets me, uh, I don't know if anxious is the right word, because I am eco, ang- I do, am paralyzed with eco-anxiety, uh, is and I understand the resiliency of, of, of nature. Nature abhors a vacuum. And no matter what happens, nature will be there and biodiversity will be there with or without human beings. But I guess when I'm looking at this optimistic view of climate chaos that, that you're presenting to us, does that let us humans off the hook? Should we not worry about what's going on with climate change, knowing that, nat- that, the, knowing that nature is resilient? Uh, I, I guess the short answer is no, we're definitely not off the hook. Listen, the, the rescue effect gets at this idea that nature has these sort of built-in ways of dealing with change, but they all have their limits. That you, if, if the change is too much or it's too fast, eventually all of these mechanisms will get uh, uh, overwhelmed. And so the question really for us is, as we think about climate change is, you know, what do we stand to lose here, which is a lot of diversity, a lot of different species are at risk, and some of that is due to the changing climate. And as we begin to sort of fast forward and say, well, what's going to happen over the next 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, the decisions that we're making now are going to determine a lot of how that plays out in the future. And I would argue that probably the most important thing you can do if you care about sort of diversity in general and nature in general is try and figure out how we can begin to combat climate change, because that's the one thing that we're doing that's changing the whole game planet-wide. So every ecosystem is changing. Every species is experiencing you know, new sets of conditions. If we can begin to bend that curve on climate change, we can give those species a whole lot more room for the rescue effect to work, for the change to be slow enough, ground enough, that species are able to adjust to that change. Alternatively, if we decide to, you know, willy-nilly burn every ounce of fossil fuel on the planet, we're, we have a lot of trouble uh, looming in the future. Um, what inspired you to write such a, is, is optimistic the right word, but an optimistic uh, book in the, in the face of such uh, paralysis that's, that so many of us feel? Yeah, there's actually a little bit of a story behind that. So I spent eight years as the executive director of an organization called the Coral Reef Alliance that was trying to save coral reefs around the world. And I spoke with lots and lots of our supporters. And the constant thing I heard from them was this sort of sense of worry, the sense of concern about the future, how reefs were changing, and uh, what was going to happen. And so I decided to sort of say, well, wait a second, you know, we can actually make some predictions about the future and we can use science to do it. So I worked with some colleagues of mine and put together a team of experts in conservation, experts in science. And we were really trying to track down this sort of one sort of core question, which is, can the corals that build reefs, um, can they make it through climate change? You know, or are we really just rearranging deck chairs on the, on the Titanic, so to speak, in terms of our conservation work? And so we did a series of uh, studies and models and tried to ask this question as accurately as we could. And the, the results that we've gotten have consistently been room for some sort of cautious optimism, which is that, yes, coral reefs are going through a big transition right now, but the projections that we were able to put together sort of indicate that there are plenty of scenarios in which corals do make it through this period of climate change, but it requires us to do some stuff, right? It requires us to bend that climate change curve. It requires us to do some good management on coral reefs in those locations where they're found right now. But when I started getting these results and started talking with my supporters about it, I noticed that there was this whole sort of change in mood from this like gloom and doom, the world is you know falling apart to, wait a minute, There's actually some reasons to be optimistic, and most importantly, there's something we can do about it to change that future in a way that we want it to be, in a way that we value. And so I started looking at this saying, huh, I wonder if there's a bit of a market failure here in conservation where because we spend so much time talking about the really acute issues, which are real, maybe we also need to be talking about the reasons we should be optimistic about nature. And so I started doing some research into, well, What kinds of things are other people finding that are working on salmon or that are working on marsupials in Australia or fish in Africa? What are they finding about 
how to deal with this kind of environmental change? And are there other reasons to be optimistic or not be optimistic? And that was sort of the birth of this project. And I decided that I wanted to write it as a book and really sort of bring people into all these different stories about how nature is changing and sort of show them what sort of the scientific consensus is or what information we had so that we could sort of collectively have an understanding that's not just about the real issues, but also about maybe there are some reasons to be optimistic. That's great. It's great to know that optimism is there. Even though I suffer from eco-anxiety, one of my guiding principles is it's better to be an optimist and a fool than a pessimist and right. So I think uh, <laughs> pessimism doesn't really get you anywhere and requires a certain amount of optimism to allow us to get up in the morning and do good work in the world and make a change. And it sounds like you're trying to do that in the rescue effect. Um, one, one thing that really struck me as interesting in the work that you did was looking at these mountain pygmy possums in the snowy mountaintops of southeastern Australia who knew there was snow in Australia and who knew there was such a thing as a mountain pygmy possum? Can you talk a little bit about that? So I, I will admit, I didn't know these critters existed. They were introduced to me by a student. I'm a professor at NYU, a student who did a research project on them, and I learned about them originally from there. But listen, this is a really unusual marsupial in Australia. They're like the size of a mouse. They've got a prehensile tail. They live on these high elevation mountains in what are called the Australian Alps, and they hibernate under the snow in the winter. The problem for these guys is that they live at the tops of the mountains in the coldest climate that's available, and they use that to sort of create their winter hibernation um, uh, uh, conditions. Uh, with climate change, uh, they're starting to struggle because they're not finding those same conditions in the winter. And it's actually a hard case in conservation because it's not clear what to do with them. You know, when I talk to experts on mountain pygmy possums about, well, if we just leave them to their own devices, are they going to make it through? And they largely say no, that unless we help them, we're going to lose this really cute, interesting species from the planet. The challenge is, well, what do you do? You can try and save them locally, like people are trying to you know, remove foxes that would eat them. In some cases, they're providing them with food when there's not much food around. But there's an interesting group in Australia that's trying to think about whether we should try and move mountain pygmy possums to another place where they might be able to um, thrive. The challenge with that is that other place looks quite a bit different from where they are right now, and it raises a question in conservation of should we be moving things around in order to keep them on the planet? Sounds uh, absolutely fascinating. We're talking with um, Michael Webster. He is the author of The Rescue Effect, soon to be hitting your local bookstore on October 11th. Uh, Michael, we have only about a minute left. Is there a take-home message from your book that you'd like to leave readers with? Yeah, what I would say is, listen, nature is really good at dealing with change in general, and that's what The Rescue Effect is about. And then on top of that, we as people who work in conservation, we've got an ever-growing, increasingly powerful toolkit to use to help species adjust. Those, that's a really good things. Um, and that the bottom line is that today, it's not too late to save most of the species on Earth, provided that we choose to act. And acting means addressing issues like climate change. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. Again, Michael Webster, uh, author of The Rescue Effect, coming out on October 11th. Mike will be doing a book tour, maybe coming up to Western Massachusetts. Who knows, right? Uh, that would be delightful. That would be delightful. And we'd love it. It sounds like a must-read, Michael. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. It's The Rescue Effect. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. We are um, going to uh, oh, tomorrow. I just wanted to tell you that tomorrow, this crazy parade, Dan, doozy do parade. We're going to have Bill Dwight, the former... President. Mr. Mayor, as I call him. Mr. Mayor, the Mr. former president. president of the City Council of Northampton, is going to be coming on with some of his colleagues and talking about the Doozy Do Parade, which will be held this weekend. So everybody join us tomorrow. Uh, we've been talking with Michael Meta Webster. The book is Rescue Effect. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. There's a red moon this is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. There's a red moon rising on the Cuyahoga River, rolling into Cleveland.
A Jack Daniels Whiskey Barrel Pen and Pencil Set. A hand-painted holiday cheese platter. The Old Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival this weekend. Furniture, paintings, jewelry, clothing, quilting. Buy direct from the makers and artists. Stained glass and pottery. Dolls, toys, and teddy bears. Plus, an exhibit of the Deerfield Arts and Crafts Movement of the early 1900s. The Old Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival. This Saturday and Sunday in Old Deerfield. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Vacant Humane Society believes in this talk for and Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group Station.